Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and it is my great honor and to my considerable relief that today I get to finally tell you all about Lola Montez. Now, I've been researching Lola's life for a very long time, and I hope that once you hear the story and see how long it turns out to be, you'll agree that it was worth it. This is the longest episode I've written, and this is only part one. The story has some dirt on some very famous names, so if you want to see Franz Liszt, Alexandre Dumas, and George Sand in a different light, and who doesn't, grab a drink and buckle up. This story takes some interesting turns, and you are not going to want to miss a single one. According to certain history buffs, Lola Montez is the kind of woman who never existed. Using her as inspiration for Irene Adler, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle described her as the woman. She eclipsed and predominated the whole of her gender. To Sherlock Holmes, she was always the woman. Well, Sherlock Holmes wasn't the only person who felt that way. Thoroughly self-possessed, brilliant, and ballsy as all hell, Lola's life story reads as too modern for the 19th century, the fact that she has all but been forgotten in favor of other famous royal mistresses is a crime, and though she was that, she was mistress to King Ludwig I of Bavaria for a short time, that's not what defined her. Her time in Bavaria, though tumultuous by any standard, was only one small part of an extraordinary life that defied every convention for a woman of her time. It's not that the information doesn't exist. Lola left behind books, lectures, and an autobiography. As detailed as her memoirs are, however, it's clear that what's included is really only the tip of the iceberg. In the 43 years Lola is known to have lived, we'll get into that later, she lived in three continents and multiple countries, made and lost multiple fortunes, and lost so many lovers in tragic circumstances that Alexandre Dumas said she was cursed. She made such an impression that multiple books, movies, and even songs were inspired by her life. There's even a mountain named after her. There's a lot to unpack here, so much so that we are actually going to break this up over two episodes with a uh, little palate cleanser in the middle. So let's start at the beginning. Lola Montez was a legend in her own lifetime. A tabloid favorite throughout Europe and America, her striking good looks, curious mannerisms, and talent for languages led to a good deal of speculation about where she was from. Papers claimed she was Spanish, Cuban, Turkish, or Roma, and some even claimed that she was an illegitimate daughter of Lord Byron himself. The truth wasn't as exciting as all that. As it happens, Lola was Irish, born in Limerick around 1821. Her birth name was Marie Dolores Eliza Rosanna Gilbert, but her parents called her Lola as a diminutive of Dolores. Years later, she took the name Montez from her mother's family, who she claimed had Spanish and Moorish ancestry from North Africa. Lola's parents were incredibly young, even for the time. Her mother, Elizabeth, was 17. Her father, Edward, was captain of the 44th Regiment in the English Army at only 22. Not long after Lola was born, his position took them to India, where Lola spent the first several years of her life. To say that Lola and her mother didn't get along is a uh, bit of an understatement. 
Lola was a precocious child who could not be controlled, a characteristic that would only get stronger as the years passed by, and her mother wanted nothing to do with it. Left in the company of domestic servants, Lola grew up speaking two Indian dialects before she fully understood English. This early experience learning multiple languages served her well throughout the rest of her life. According to her biographer, Ishbel Ross, Lola was nothing short of pyrotechnic when it came to languages. Before long, she would speak at least eight, adding French, Spanish, German, Polish, and even Russian to the mix by the time she was in her 20s. Despite her early academic brilliance, Lola was seen as a problem child. Preferring Indian clothing and fabrics, I mean, who wouldn't? She hated confining English clothing and tore it off every chance she got. One episode from her early childhood is particularly illustrative of what her parents were dealing with. One day, her parents caught her running barefoot toward a pond in a forbidden part of their garden. The pond was full of cobras, and though they were obviously dangerous, she had heard locals saying that cobras only killed those who showed fear. So what did she do? Well, she ripped off her clothes and jumped in. Lola Montez wasn't afraid of anything. How she survived childhood is anyone's guess. While she was in India, a cholera outbreak killed her father. On his deathbed, he begged his best friend, Captain Craigie, to take care of Elizabeth and Lola, and the captain evidently took this request very seriously. He married Lola's mother himself. As Lola's stepfather, he showed more care and understanding than her parents ever had, and when she was eight, he arranged to send her to study with his family in Scotland. As well-intentioned as the move was, Lola hated Britain. The rules were stifling, the clothes were tight, and the food was terrible. Lola liked curry. She was used to her freedom, and adjusting to life in Scotland was difficult. It was cold, dreary, and no one understood a word she said. She still spoke a combination of accented English and Hindi. She was lonely, frustrated, and she acted out, again, often ripping off the clothes that she hated, because nothing else seemed to anger her guardians more. Finally, the decision was made to send Lola to school under the guardianship of another friend of her stepfather's, Sir Jasper Nichols, a commander-in-chief in the army and himself the father of a young daughter named Fanny. Fanny and Lola were sent to Paris for school, where they were taught entirely in French. Lola took to her fourth language very well, and she would continue to use it regularly for the rest of her life. Paris agreed with Lola, and years later, she would continue to find her way back to it. When Lola was 13, she and Fanny were sent back to England for finishing school in Bath. Only a year later, Lola received an unexpected visit from her mother. Elizabeth, still very young herself at only 31, arrived with a handsome young Captain Thomas James from the army in India. Captain James was on sick leave, and Elizabeth had offered to accompany him as she was on her way to visit Lola. By the time they reached Bath, Captain James was half in love with Lola's mother, who was herself a famous beauty and had been a dancer of some renown. How Elizabeth felt about Captain James is anyone's guess. That's not why she was there. She was kinder to Lola than she had ever been, and she took her out shopping for dresses. Like, a lot of dresses. A lot of very grown-up dresses, and even lacy lingerie more suited to a woman twice her age. Lola's hopes that her mother was making up for lost time evaporated as soon as she got the truth out of her. Her mother had promised her in marriage to Sir Abraham Lumley, a Supreme Court judge and an old family friend. 
emphasis on old. Sir Abraham was in his 60s, and Lola was still only 14. As you can imagine, Lola handled this news with grace and decorum. <laughs> Just kidding. She destroyed a tea service, tore up the dresses with her bare hands, and raged with such passion that her relationship with her mother never recovered. This has been framed at times as a personal failing, but as far as I'm concerned, that's really the only reasonable reaction. Anyway, Lola accused her mother of throwing her alive into the jaws of death, but instead of rethinking her idea to marry her daughter, still an actual child, to a man old enough to be her grandfather, her mother doubled down and pointed out that she could force her to do it because she was still a minor. The fact that she was still a minor didn't seem to set off any alarm bells or anything. Thanks, Mom. So how did Lola get out of this one? Well, she married Captain James instead. It wasn't that she particularly liked him. She didn't. But at only 27, he seemed a better option than Sir Abraham. As she was still a minor, they had to get permission from her mother. But after they ran away to Ireland alone, Elizabeth felt her hand was forced. Elizabeth never forgave Lola for disobeying her, and Lola never forgave her mother for trying to sell her. Captain James was less than ideal, but if she was going to be forced to marry, she'd have her revenge by taking her mother's would-be paramour. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And Captain James was stupid. You've got to question the sense of a man who would marry his girlfriend's daughter anyway, but that's not all. In her autobiography, Lola described him as only the outside shell of a husband who had neither a brain which she could respect nor a heart which it was possible for her to love. Ouch. Anyway, Captain James took Lola back to Ireland, then immediately got jealous when other men noticed that she was beautiful. Of course they noticed. Lola looked older than she was, and she'd already been turning heads with her striking features for years. She had almost translucently pale skin, naturally black hair, and huge light blue eyes that were as unsettling as they were beautiful. While other girls had been socialized to look down when men spoke to them, Lola made eye contact and she didn't flinch. She was the smartest person in the room, and she didn't care who knew it. Women thought she was trouble. Men loved it. Because of the attention she received in Dublin, Captain James resolved to hide her away and took her to live with his very religious family out in the country. They stayed there for the better part of a year, and it was torture. Lola later wrote that she grew tired of drinking innumerable cups of tea, medicinal baths for the inside, taken with the most impenetrable gravity at all hours of the day. She was bored out of her mind, and she later wrote that she would have shot herself if it had gone on any longer. Fortunately for Lola, Captain James was soon ordered back to India, and Lola went with him. As much as she loved India, the move did little to improve her relationship with Captain James. They had nothing in common apart from the fact that they were both considered rather attractive. Lola had her fair share of admirers, but it was Captain James who had the affair. Before long, the handsome captain began disappearing for long morning rides with a certain Mrs. Lomer, while Lola typically had breakfast with her husband. Lola suspected a flirtation, but was largely unbothered. If Mrs. Lomer wanted to keep Captain James out of her hair, so much the better. Her suspicions were finally confirmed when Captain James was not only caught with Mrs. Lomer in an intimate situation, but subsequently actually eloped with her as well. What did Lola do? Well, she had a good laugh and sent his things after him. 
Reflecting on the ill-fated marriage in later years, Lola didn't blame Captain James for leaving. Rather, she regretted ever marrying him in the first place. In her autobiography, she said of her own first marriage, Runaway matches, like runaway horses, are almost sure to end in a smash-up. My advice to all young girls who contemplate taking such a step is that they had better hang or drown themselves just one hour before they start. Still, her relationship with Captain James wasn't as disastrous as it could have been. In her later lectures, she explained that the affairs of married men could prove to be a blessing, and Captain James's certainly was for her. As it happened, his leaving was the best thing that could have happened to her. Truly free for the first time in her life, it was up to Lola to decide her own destiny. The world wasn't ready. Really alone for the first time in her life, Lola found the sympathy of other army wives was limited when they began to see her as a threat. She was clever, beautiful, unattached. They felt bad for her being left, but not bad enough to let her stick around. After some discussion, the other army wives decided to send her to stay with her mother, who now lived in Calcutta with General Craigie. Lola and her mother had left things on an unpleasant note, and Lola's reception in Calcutta was not a happy one. Horrified at the scandal of Lola's failed marriage, her mother locked her in a bedroom and tried to pressure her to get back together with Captain James. Captain James wasn't interested, and neither was Lola. As for General Craigie, always the better parent, he realized that the best course of action for all involved was to let Lola live her own life. He arranged for her passage back to Britain, a place for her to stay in London, and he gave her $5,000 to keep her going. Lola had another 5000 worth of jewelry to take back with her as well, so she would start her new life with about ten grand in the bank, which was a huge amount of money for the time. Looking forward to her new life as a single woman, Lola returned to England. On the way back, she took up with a new man, Captain Lennox, and the two were so openly affectionate that it scandalized the ship's captain. But not so much that he didn't watch. How do we know this? Well, once Lola got back to England, Captain James sued her for divorce on the grounds of infidelity. Not his, of course. Hers. That's right, the same jackass who ran off and attempted to marry another married woman in India was suing Lola for divorce because she had a boyfriend months, if not actually years, after Captain James abandoned her in a foreign country. And you know what's worse? Captain James actually one. Captain Ingram, the captain from the ship, testified that he had watched Lola making out with Captain Lennox late at night multiple times, which he considered very improper, but was still able to specify where it happened and exactly how late at night it was. They were granted a separation known as a mensa et thoro, which meant that they were separated but not completely divorced, so neither would technically be allowed to marry again while the other was still alive. Lola didn't take this particularly seriously, as we'll see later on. The real damage was from the bad press. Various papers wrote about the case and detailed the many hotels Mrs. James and Captain Lennox had been spotted at. As it happened, Captain Ingram wasn't the only one watching. It was enough to scare Captain Lennox away. Their short-lived romance ended when he ghosted her under pressure from his conservative family, who had been scandalized by the negative attention. But Lola wasn't exactly heartbroken. Like Captain James, she'd ultimately found Captain Lennox boring, and in any case, she was already on to the next adventure. Her money could have kept her going for quite a while, but it didn't. 
Knowing she would need to support herself, Lola decided to become a dancer. Her mother had been a dancer at one point, and Lola had always loved watching dance performances in India. Never one to half-ass anything, Lola trained with a Spanish dance teacher in England and even traveled to Spain to study before making her stage debut in London. When her mother heard, she put on a mourning dress and sent out funeral letters to all of her friends announcing the death of her daughter. Lola James was dead, but Lola Montez was just getting started. Lola was a magnetic performer and her dancing took her to stages all over Europe. She became known for her signature spider dance. It was a kind of burlesque performance where she would pretend there were spiders in her dress, frantically swatting at them and tearing off her clothes as she danced until she finally ended wearing nothing much at all. It would fit into a modern burlesque night, but the dance itself was actually much older. There are various versions of the Tarantella today, but the dance actually started in the ancient world. It seems to have originated around Naples as a rite of Bacchus, an erotic, frantic, therapeutic, and sometimes violent dance that echoed the gods' sacred orgies. Other similar dances, such as the hypersexual Timoriata, were performed in honor of the goddess Sibylle, who we talked about in episode 6. Tarantella literally means little spider, and the dance is meant to symbolize the agony of being in love, expressed here as a poisonous spider bite that drives its victims to mania. The only way to get rid of the poison is to dance so frantically that you expel it from your system entirely. Lola's spider dance was probably a Victorian burlesque take on this very old idea. It was said that she wasn't a particularly gifted dancer, but the tarantella was never meant to be precise. It wasn't a ballet, it was an exorcism. So, armed with a clever dress, fake spiders, and absolutely no sense of shame, Lola set out to set the world on fire. Literally, in some cases. But we'll get there. On stage and off, Lola cultivated a signature look that got her plenty of attention. Around this time, she started to wear black almost exclusively. Her stage costume was a concoction of black velvet and lace, which was striking with her black hair and almost ghostly white skin. Her blue eyes stood out, of course, and so did her lips. With her deep scarlet lipstick, she looked like a real-life Snow White. Even at the time, people said her complexion made her look dead. But they were into it. We are talking about the Victorians, after all. So she was gorgeous, which usually helps, but that wasn't the only thing she had going for her. She was smart, resourceful, spoke several languages fluently, and, as her books and lectures would later reveal, she was wickedly funny. She didn't have a lot of respect for convention, but where's the fun in that? She attracted people everywhere she went, and her charisma meant she got opportunities denied to more technically talented dancers. Her dancing was great, but, perhaps more importantly, people wanted to have a drink with her. She could hold her own in any conversation, and no one intimidated her. It would be remarked on throughout her life that many men tried to hit on her only to be distracted by her conversation. If she wasn't interested, she talked to them about art, business, or politics into the small hours of the morning, at which point many of them had started seeing her as an equal rather than just a sex object. I mean, you'd think that was hotter, <laughs> but men are men in any era, and then, as now, plenty of them were intimidated by smart women. Not all of them, of course, but we'll get there. Sick of the tabloids, Lola left London in 1843, dancing and making influential connections all across Europe. 
Over the next four years, she headlined in Berlin, Warsaw, St. Petersburg, Constantinople, Dresden, Vienna, Prague, Genoa, and Paris. She was welcomed into aristocratic circles and even royal courts to the point that, like Matahari in later years, people started to suspect that she was actually a spy. Lola had her first real brush with political upheaval when she made it to Poland. There, she caught the attention of Count Ivan Fyodorovich Paskovich, at that time the governor of Poland. He'd been a good-looking guy in his younger years, but when Lola met him, he was 60, had a metal plate in his mouth, and everyone thought he was an asshole. Thing is, they were right. A decade before, Paskovich had been instrumental in crushing the Polish rebellion. He captured Warsaw, sent children to the Ural Mountains, had Catholic women flogged, and did what he could to force the Polish to speak Russian. People hated him, but he still had an incredible amount of power. He took one look at Lola, said, I want that, and he made her an offer she couldn't refuse. Except she did. See, the thing about Lola is that she was never in it for the money. Like other courtesans of this period, she was in it for her freedom. When she had lovers, she picked them because she liked them. Any money or gifts were incidental. In any case, she was terrible with money. She wasn't about to hook up with some guy just because he was loaded. But he tried. Paskovich offered her everything he could think of. An estate, a title, money, jewels. Alone with him in his palace, this guy had a palace. She listened politely, but made a swift exit. As Ishbel Ross describes in Lola's biography, Paskovich was gnome-like in stature, vain in manner, cruel in practice, and a bore in conversation. Plus, he was married. Of course he was married. Despite this, or because of this, he didn't exactly handle her rejection with grace. When she didn't immediately change her mind, he threatened to ruin her career. It was hardly the first Me Too in history, and God knows it wouldn't be the last. He followed through, too. When Lola returned to the stage, several people had been placed in the audience to verbally abuse her as she performed. This continued for three nights until Lola finally had enough. On the third night, she stopped dancing, marched to the front of the stage, and shouted to the audience that those booing her had been sent by Paskovich because she turned down his advances. She couldn't have known how the audience would react. They hated Paskovich, and this power play of his was the straw that broke the camel's back. Fights broke out in the audience, which turned to riots as the night went on. A crowd of audience members escorted Lola to her hotel to keep her safe, but the police had already been sent after her. In what must have been the most nerve-wracking night of her life, she barricaded herself behind the door to her room with a pistol and declared that she would shoot anybody who tried to get in. Needless to say, no one tried. While they were trying to come up with different ways to get her out, the French consul claimed her as their own and got her out of Warsaw. It was the first time she'd be forced to leave in the dead of night due to political upheaval, but it wouldn't be the last. From there, Lola continued her tour to St. Petersburg and eventually back to Germany. She was briefly engaged to a prince, but ended it when she found out he had another mistress. But it was in Dresden that Lola met podcast favorite Franz Liszt, who we talked about in episode 11 when we covered his love affair with Marie Duplessis, La Demo Camellia. When Lola met him, he was at the height of his fame. Listomania had set Europe on fire, and he was just splitting up with his longtime mistress, the Comtesse d'Agoult. Lola wasn't immune to Listomania herself. 
He was hot, incredibly talented, and, crucial for Lola, he was smart. They had a brief on-again-off-again relationship, and though we don't know for sure how Lola felt about it, we can read into her silence. He was one of the only men she was involved with who she never discussed or criticized. She respected him too much for that. And he liked her. Everyone did. Everyone, that is, except for composer Richard Wagner. He met her in Dresden while she was with Liszt, and he described her as a painted and jeweled woman with bold, bad eyes, demonic and heartless. Man. As Didavanti says, you can be the ripest, juiciest peach in the world, and there's still going to be some idiot who hates peaches. I might be editorializing there just a little bit. Sorry, Dita. Anyway, Lola and Liszt were both intense people, and Liszt had plenty of baggage of his own. To refresh your memory, Liszt had been with the Comtesse d'Agoul for years. She was the mother of his children, and she had actually left her family and her first husband to be with him. They were together for years, until Liszt had a high-profile affair with author George Sand. The Comtesse heard about it, of course, and officially challenged the other woman to a duel, her weapon of choice being her fingernails. Liszt, hating confrontation, locked himself in a closet until the women calmed down. This avoidance of confrontation would keep coming up. He took it to a new level when he finally broke up with Lola for good in 1844. He was devoted to his work and to Marie Duplessis back in Paris, but he couldn't bring himself to tell her outright. One night, he left their hotel room while she was sleeping and arranged to have her locked in until he was well and truly gone. He even paid the hotel in advance for the damage he knew that she would do when she found out. And he was right to be concerned. When Lola woke up to find him gone, she destroyed the room and everything in it. He didn't so much as leave a note, but he did write her a song. Despite the bad ending, Lola always loved Liszt in her own way. She continued to follow his career until her death, and when she was later involved with King Ludwig, she arranged for him to receive honors at the court. But we're not there yet. After Dresden, Lola found her way back to Paris. She'd always liked it there, and she was determined to enjoy herself. At this point, she was pretty famous in her own right, and the opportunities kept coming up. It was around this time, in the final year of Marie Duplessis' short life, that it was remarked, Lola Montez couldn't make friends, and Marie Duplessis couldn't make enemies. It was mostly true, with two notable exceptions. Oddly enough, from the same family. Marie Duplessis made a powerful enemy in Alexandre Dumas-Fille, who ensured her legacy by writing a tragedy about how she had broken his heart. While he was distracted with that, the far more famous Lola Montez had made friends with Daddy Dumas, the Alexandre Dumas, who wrote all of the actually good books. What can I say? Lola liked smart guys. And Dumas liked her. A lot. Their fling was also brief, but it led to a prediction that would haunt her for the rest of her life. Dumas said she had a fatal touch and he predicted that she would bring ill luck to any man who linked his life with hers. He may have been onto something. Not long after they split up, Lola fell in love with his friend, newspaper editor Alexandre Henri Dujarrier. The feeling was mutual. With Dumas and Dujarrier, Lola moved in the more intellectual circles in Paris, indulging her love of learning and making even more influential friends. Among them, George Sand, 
Though List had been involved with both of them at various points, Lola and George became fast friends. Lola liked that George wore men's clothing and immediately understood why she did it. George copied Lola's habit of wearing black with bright accents, and Lola started smoking cigars just like George. Tragically, this would become the addiction to chain smoking that probably ultimately ended Lola's life. But that was still a ways off. Lola was in love. She and Dujarier were engaged and looking forward to their future together, but it wasn't to be. Not long after, Dujarier was challenged to a duel. It's still unclear exactly why, but it seems to have been over political differences. Dujarier took the bait, but he was a terrible shot. Concerned, his friend Dumas actually enlisted his son, Dumas Fee, to take Dujarier for shooting practice before the duel happened. Dujarier was such a terrible shot that he only hit the target twice out of 24 tries. He was screwed, but he wouldn't back out. Instead, he made a will. Lola had no idea. At nine o'clock the morning of the duel, she received a note from Dujarier. It read, My dear Lola, I am going out to fight with pistols. That's why I didn't come to see you this morning. I have need of all of my calmness. At two o'clock, all will be over. A thousand embraces my good little Lola, the good little woman whom I love so much, and the thought of whom will never leave me. It sounded a bit too much like goodbye. Lola ran upstairs to dress so she could try to stop the duel, but she was interrupted by the sound of a carriage outside. She ran to meet it. As she pulled open the door, Dujarier's body fell into her arms. He was already dead, and he'd been shot through the face. As you can imagine, Lola was inconsolable. As soon as Dumas heard what had happened, he rushed over and took charge of the situation. They found Dujarier's will in his pocket. He'd left most of his fortune to his mother, but remembered Lola with several of his shares to the Palais Royal Theater. The shares were worth about 20,000 francs, but Lola didn't care. She withdrew from public life and mourned Dujarier until his killer was brought to trial a year later. The man was convicted of murder and imprisoned, in no small part thanks to Lola's testimony and that of Alexandre Dumas. Lola and Dumas were still friends, but by then he had started to regard her with suspicion. He found her hypnotic, seductive, but with an undercurrent of violence. He said, She has the evil eye and is sure to bring bad luck to anyone who closely links his destiny with hers for however short a time. If ever she is heard of again, it will be in connection with some terrible calamity that has befallen a lover of hers. He was right. When we come back for part two of The Legend of Lolo Montez, we'll pick up where we left off as Lola reaches Bavaria and experiences highs and lows not even Dumas could have predicted. This week, I'd like to thank all of you for your continued patience as I tell this story. Guys, I've been researching the story for longer than the podcast has existed, and as I'm sure you can tell from the length of it, it's proving to be a little bit ambitious. Next week, we'll have an episode about a legend of another kind with a very special guest joining us, and then we'll be back for part two of The Legend of Lola. Part two involves more suspicious deaths, the occult, and a pet bear, so you know it's going to be good. I can't wait to tell you all about it. As a quick side note, I also want to mention that I have a Regency novella re-releasing next week. 
It's called The Nightingale and the Lark, and it originally appeared in the Regency and Color Anthology. It's part of a series with authors Hilde McQueen, Elise Marion, and Gabrielle Carr, and I was pretty excited to be a part of it. I'm mentioning it here because of the connection to the podcast. It features the spider dance we talked about today, and the hero is actually loosely based on Robertson, the creator of the infamous Phantasmagoria we talked about in episode 5. If you listened to that episode and thought, man, that guy in the stage makeup messing around with skeletons sounds hot. I want to read a romance about him. Well, it's your lucky day. (laughs) It is a romance novel, however, so if that's not your scene, that's okay. But for anybody wanting a sex scene on a priceless 17th century forte piano, it's called The Nightingale and the Lark, and it's up for pre-order now. Enjoy! So thank you for listening to me talk about my other projects, and thank you also to our beautiful patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Kelly Simon, Akko Spoot, and Sylvia Van Eyck. Thank you all so very much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can follow us at Dirty Sexy History on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where I will, of course, post photos from today's show. My sources today include Alessandra Belloni, Healing Journeys with the Black Madonna. As a quick side note here, Alessandra Belloni is a celebrated percussionist, and this book explores the history of the Tarantella and the Tamoriata back to their roots in pre-Christian Italy. It's a fascinating read. I also used Lola's own books, The Arts of Beauty and the Lectures of Lola Montez, with a full and complete autobiography of her life, compiled by C. Chauncey Burr, and Ishbel Ross, The Uncrowned Queen, The Life of Lola Montez. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.